You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. So when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I'm glad you're all here. If you're a first-time guest, I want to say thank you so much for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here, and we hope you enjoy your time, uh, and that maybe somebody gets to uh, gets a chance to tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to accomplish here as a church. Um, like Lauren said, we're in the middle of a series called Life Together, and we've chosen to walk through Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. And just as a reminder, you know, you know, Paul regularly in his letters, what he'll do, it's the way in which he formulates these books is uh, the first half of his books or the first half of his letters, he'll spend an over an amount of time talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's more theological. It's more uh, about the life, of, the life of Christ and how he fulfills the Old Testament and all of the implications. The, the back half is filled with, so what does that mean for us? Who are we? And what should we then do in light of who Christ is? And so that's why we've chosen to go through the back half of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is because it has that practical application. Uh, if this is who Jesus is, then how should we then live? And in some ways, these two verses kind of pack that, uh, both sides of that together, simultaneously how we should live and, and who Christ is, all in two little verses. And so there's a lot uh, of depth packed into these two verses. And also, one of the reasons that we wanted to spend so much time, an entire sermon on it is it's hard to understand the rest of chapter five apart from these two verses. It's everything that you're going to read in chapter number five from here on. So one of those is what theologians call the mortification of sin, or that we have what Paul says in Romans chapter number seven, the things that we ought not do, we end up doing, right? The, the sinful things, this brokenness in us that we tend to be leaning towards that, that we're, we want to put that to death. And so Paul's going to talk about those things, putting that to death in us. And then he's also going to talk about the things that we ought to bring to life, that Jesus actually, like uh, Ephesians 4 says, there's the new self that we put on, and there's these things that we ought to do that we don't end up doing, right? And so we want to bring those to life. That's the vivification of the Spirit. And then lastly, he's going to talk about marriage, the covenant of marriage, the most important relationship uh, apart from your relationship with God defined in the scriptures. Now, the reason that we want to focus on these two verses is the motivation and the strength to engage with the next three topics all are summed up here with this theme, and that theme is love. The theme here in these two verses is the love that it requires in order to apply that. Now, I want to say here that Paul, does, Paul helps us because he doesn't just leave love undefined. He defines it for us, and we're going to get into that. But what I'd like to do is pray first, and I'd like us to pray, um, God, help us not to assume that we've already kind of got this under control because we understand the love. We understand the love of God. We understand how we ought to love, and here's why. Because our culture, I've said this many times, you know, we love chocolate cake, and we love our kids, and hopefully we don't love them the same, except we use the same word, right? And... Uh, and so I want us to ask the question, God, we want to see love as you see it. We want to define love as you define it, and then we want, to, we want to walk in that love as you would see fit. So let's, if you would, bow your heads and pray with me. Let's start there, and then we'll jump into the text. 
Father, we first want to come to you with gratitude. We're so grateful that your word has been provided for us, that we have an anchor to the soul because we have the scriptures, that we don't have to search around, we don't have to run to best advice, but we have your word. And so we ask now that you'd help us to understand your word, to be read by it. And in so doing, my God, that we would get to know you more deeply and that, Lord Jesus, you would stand forth from your word as a beautiful and glorious and matchless Savior, full of love for us, and that we would experience that love this morning. And then finally, Lord, we want to pray that we would be able mercifully to define love as you define it, to see it as you see it, to walk in love as you walked in love, Lord Jesus. And although we know we will do that imperfectly, that there will be an overt amount of grace for us as we look to imitate you. We love you, God, and we ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's read Ephesians chapter 5, just the first verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So remember, therefore, we always want to ask the question, what is it there for? And it's, it's there to talk about what we've just discussed in chapter 4. So remember, chapter 4, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, Paul had told us that we ought to put on the new self after the likeness of Christ. We want to put off the old self. There's an old us, which is our firstborn nature that we want to put off every morning. The new self is, the, is this new self that's been fashioned after the likeness of Jesus. By faith, we want to put that on and our lives should look different. This line here is a, is a one-line summation of what he said in the last half of that chapter. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's, that's kind of, if you want to sum up how you do that, you try to be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, we need to pause here and really think about that. What a massive command, right? Who are we supposed to imitate? God. You know, no small task, right? Imitate God. Try to mimic in word and in deed the God of all things, the creator of all things. The matchless king of kings, lord of lords, you know, universe creator, all of these. If you think of God in the scriptures, we're supposed to try to mimic him. That's that's a a tall idea. But this idea comes from a, a term in the scriptures and uh, what many theologians call like Christian holiness. Jesus says to his disciples, be holy even as I am holy. This idea that God is completely sacred, he's completely set apart, he's different than his creation, and yet then Christ calls us to, to mimic that and to pursue that and to lean into that kind of separateness and that holiness. Now, There's two things that Christians believe about holiness, and we need to get both of these in order to really understand this text. Number one, Christians believe no human being is seen as holy before the sight of God in our firstborn nature, that we're not just born holy. We see this in the scriptures from Adam all the way forward, and and it's really culminated in the book of Romans. Paul says in Romans chapter number three, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So every human being falls underneath the category of not holy in the sight of God. But this is the very purpose for which Jesus came. Jesus came to be holy on our behalf, not to teach us the way, although he will be teaching us the way, but to be the way. Does this make sense? Not to teach us how, like, like all we needed was a little bit of tweaking, right? We just needed a better teacher. No, you had all the teachers. We had Moses. We had, what we needed is for someone to step in on our behalf and be perfectly holy, to, to be all of the things that we're not, and then to be our substitute on, on our behalf so that 
through faith in Christ, now we get positional holiness before God. So what happens is it's called this great exchange. Jesus shows up on the cross and he takes our place, even though he's holy. It's, it's not a coincidental thing that Jesus is crucified between two thieves. It's, it's fulfillment of prophecy that he would be numbered among the transgressors. So we all, because we're unholy, are glory thieves. We live our lives for the glory of ourselves often, and that's from birth. And Jesus is numbered like one of us on the cross, so he takes the punishment that we deserve. Now, the flip of that is that what we get is Christ's positional holiness, that Christ was positionally holy before God. When God looked down on humanity, there's only been one man that ever lived that was perfectly holy, and that's Christ. It wasn't Adam. It wasn't Eve, it was Christ. And so now, through faith, that when God looks down, God the Father, what he sees when he sees us through faith is he sees the holiness of Christ. We have positional holiness. This is why the Bible has these terms like, you have been sanctified. If you've been a Christian for a while, you might wonder when you read that, how can they say you have been sanctified when we know that we're, we're not holy yet, right? We still make mistakes and not just mistakes, but sins and not just sins, but grotesque things. We still have a lot to work out. How can we have been sanctified in the past tense? The Bible's speaking about your positional holiness in Christ that is there by faith. The Bible calls it this, a free gift, not of your own doing. You can't do anything for it. God did it for you. You just receive it by faith. It's totally apart from your effort. That holiness is yours apart from anything that you do in that sense. Positional holiness before God. This is why we sing. This is why we worship. God's done this for us. Now, number two, Christians also believe that then Jesus calls us to live out that positional holiness in our day-to-day living. So that we're supposed to live into that Christ has called us holy. He's called us righteous. And now we're supposed to live into that and live up to that call. That every day we wake up and say, I want to live as Christ has deemed me, which is holy. I want to live as Christ has has spoken of me, which is righteous. And we want to live like he lives. Another way to put that is that God provides for us in Christ the holiness that we then pursue through spirit-empowered living. So we, through the spirit's power, try to imitate God in our words and deeds. This is where your Bible says things like you are being sanctified. Or, have you ever seen this in your Bible? The book of Romans has it a lot. The book of Romans will say things like, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Have you ever seen that? And it's like, well, which one is it? It's kind of a little bit of a roller coaster, right? You're like, well, am I saved or am I being saved? Or will I be saved later? Which one? It's all three of those for the Christian. You have been saved because positionally now when God sees you, he sees Christ. You are being saved because what's happening inside of you is the culmination of what started at your salvation. You're becoming more like Jesus and you will be finally saved when one day we see Jesus face to face and everything that's been promised will now come true. Does this make sense? All three of these are true. And the the theologians will talk about those in these terms. Justification, we're made right before God because of a gift. Sanctification, we're being made more holy through the cooperation of us with God's spirit as we look to live like Jesus. And then glorification, one day we will have have glorified bodies and you don't have to worry about what you eat and getting in the Chick-fil-A line anymore because you'll look good. And not just outwardly, but inwardly, right? Paul's talking here about the first two. Because you are holy, now live into that holiness by imitating God. And then he has this line, which I think is important, as beloved children. Now, before we get into that, we got to ask the question, how do we imitate God? I mean, what are we looking for? Because in order for us to imitate, you got to have a good picture of what to do. What are we imitating? It's why you watch YouTube and, you know, if you 
or a guy or a gal for that matter, but you're trying to fix something around the house, you'll put a YouTube video and you try to imitate what they're doing, right? You have to be able to have a visual in order to imitate. And the good news of the gospel is our visual of God in 3D is Jesus Christ. We have that. The book of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, and it should be up behind me, but the writer of Hebrews is talking about the, uh, the, the image of God being Christ. He says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and listen to this line, and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. Do you want to know how God feels about certain things? Look at how Jesus operates. Do you want to know how God feels about, I don't know, forgiveness of sin? Look at what Jesus does and how he handles the woman caught in adultery. So you look to Jesus to know how God, what God is like. If you want to know in 3D what God is like, you look at Jesus' life. And so when Paul says that we need to be imitators of God, it's interchangeable to say that we look to imitate the life of Jesus. There's a book out in the foyer. I think it's still there. It's called The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. And I'm just paraphrasing one of his quotes because I don't really, I didn't write it word for word. But he says, if you were to forget the Ten Commandments, forget all of the fruit of the Spirit, lose sight of all the commands in the New Testament, you could still access a picture of holiness that is worth imitating by calling to remembrance the face of Christ. His point is that if, if, if you didn't memorize, you know, like you, you didn't go to kids' ministry, so you don't have the songs, right, to memorize all the commands and things like that, so you can't think of like, what does God want me to imitate? How does God want me to live? And I think all those things are good, by the way, but his point is that if you just could picture in your mind the way that Jesus lived, then you have a worthy life of imitating. That holiness is not merely holding a moral standard, but holiness is imitating a holy life in the person of Jesus by the Spirit's power. Does this make sense? Holiness is not having a list of the things that we ought to do and the things that we ought not to do. Holiness is seeing Christ and saying, I want to live like him. And this is why Jesus didn't tell his disciples, here's a book to read to learn to be like me. He said, follow me. Follow me. Be my disciple. Come live with me. Come be with me. Come eat with me. Come watch me closely. This is how Jesus discipled his apostles. Now, when the Bible says that we should be imitators of God as beloved children, this is, there's two purposes for this. Number one is that we ought to see ourselves first and foremost as children of God in order to really do this well, that we have a father who loves us. We have a God who loves us and cares for us, and therefore he is helping us to imitate him. It's not that God's working against us. It's not like, you know, maybe like Greek mythology where you feel like you always have antagonism between you and the gods, but you have a father who loves you and wants to grow you into his image. That's number one. Number two, Paul knows here, and he's picking up on something that we all know, especially here at Providence. We got kids running around everywhere. It's pretty regular. Is that kids imitate you by their very second nature. I've seen it happen in church. You know, we have the kids and the kids are with you. Maybe they've been more since, since COVID as we haven't had classrooms, but you know, the kids, they worship like their dad and mom. You guys, your eyes are closed. You probably don't see it, but I see it if I watch. And, you know, maybe if dad raises his hand, you'll see like a, a child, he'll start to raise his hand on his dad. Like, this is how you do it? This is how you, two hands, one hand? You know, so in the bridge, they're like, you know. <laughs> or like dad puts his hands on the seat and I'll watch some of the, the young boys, they'll put their hands on the seat and they'll close their eyes like their dad does. And they just do it kind of by second nature. They imitate. They imitate you during worship. They imitate you during prayer. Now, if you're a parent, then you also know it's not just the good things that your kids do that imitate you. It's also thing, things that you wish they wouldn't do, Right. And it seems like those happen more often than not. <laughs> I, I, grew up in, uh, I grew up in more in the country, especially my grandmother. My grandmother has, has 100 acres. She's ranched her whole life. She's always lived on the same property. And so, of course, my son, 
there was a time, and I, I don't know how to, you know, I give the exact time or, or circumstance, but there was some, at some point where there was not a restroom available for us. And so I told him, I'm going to go over to the restroom over here. And it was like the first time that my son said, like, this is legit. You can go to the bathroom on a tree. And he's looking at me like, this can happen. And I'm like, yeah, like, it's okay. Like, go over there, you know. And listen, if that's disgusting for you, I, I know myself, okay. I, I, I'm sorry. I am that nasty. But I was telling my son, go ahead. And uh, anyway, a few weeks later, lo and behold, we get an email from his kindergarten teacher. And she says, she says, Joe, we love Jonas. He's amazing. You know, he's fun. Could you please just tell him that during, during recess, he can't just go pee on a tree. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, you know what? I'm reading this email. There's really no way out of it. They like CC the whole administrative board, you know, and you're like, and everyone knows which parent did this, you know, it's clearly me. But then by the grace of God, there was uh, one of the administrators who actually lives down the street from us, and because we live on a, a little bit out, more out into the country, and lives down the street. And she says, "Listen, hey, it's okay. I'll take care of Jonas. They don't know what it's like to live in Huffman." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, thank God! You know, I'm, I'm not seen as terrible, you know." But you know, my kids, in a more serious note, my kids both have uh, speech development delays, and and so. That English is not their first language, so they're learning, and they're constantly learning. And, and one of the things that we learned uh, early on when we started to work with our kids is from, an, from infancy, your kids start to learn how to talk and how to make facial expressions by being, when they first open their eyes, they stay so close to mom's face and dad's face, but primarily mom because mom's feeding them, and they watch your mouth move. They watch your facial expressions. So most of the reason that your kids look like you is genetic, but there's another portion of it that is called attuning, facial attuning, that comes from nurture. They learn to smile like you. They learn to frown like you. They learn to furrow their brows like you, and it's from infancy. You're hardwired for imitation. Kids are, and so What Paul is saying here is that you now, by the Spirit, have been hardwired for imitation of God and that we need to lean into that. We need to lean into now, by the Spirit, when we look into the face of Christ, want to imitate the way in which he lives his life. Now, I want to take that analogy and ask, how do kids imitate? Because if children, by learning to imitate us, they begin to look more like us, and even biologically, similarly so, by learning to imitate Jesus, we begin to be gradually transformed into his likeness and the likeness of our heavenly father, becoming who we were created to be. So how, did, how then do children imitate? Well, I have a few things, and you could probably add to these, but your kids never listen carefully when you want them to listen carefully, and then they do when you don't, right? When they're imitating, they're really listening in. This happens like conversations at the dinner table when you're trying to talk to your, your wife and, or your husband, and your kids are listening in, and they hear things that you wish they didn't say. Then they, then they say those things later on, but they listen carefully. They watch closely. They see what you do. They see how you act. They see my son will do this thing where he sighs like I sigh. Like, <sighs> and I'm like, man, you're sassy. And then I remember, like, oh, he saw that somewhere, you know? They watch closely. Another thing they do is they try on things without shame, like your clothes, your shoes, even your role. Like sometimes they want to play, they want to role play, right? And this is where we get into some real insight from Paul here is that we ought to imitate as beloved children because isn't there times where your kids will be playing a role play and then they want to be you, they want to be the parent and that's where you're like, whoa, that's too far, right? They start trying to tell, like they they mimic you and they say things like where you're like, here's an example, be quiet and go clean your room. And then they say, be quiet and go clean your room. And you say, I will harm you, (laughs) right? They're imitating, but then they cross a line. Similarly so, the Bible doesn't tell us that we're supposed to try to be Jesus. 
The Bible tells us that we want to be like Jesus, but we always know that we have a Lord and Savior. We have a Heavenly Father, and we're not, we're not God. We're, just, we're trying to imitate, and that line is really clearly uh, depicted here by Paul as parents to children, that we don't try to take the seat of judgment. Jesus is the judge, but we try to imitate Christ by being discerning and kind, caring and loving and, and committed to the truth, all of these things. Okay, so we try on the roles of Jesus, but we don't try to step into his role. Maybe more like what we should be aimed at is when you meet a child and you're like, man, I wanna, I wanna say your parents did a great job raising you, right? And so they give honor to the father and the mother for raising this kid that we ought to try to live like that so that when people see our lives, they say, oh man, your father must be great, right? That's the idea. And then lastly, you get the rep- repetition and resolve. Kids do things over and over and over again to an annoying level, and they're resolved to do it. You know, it's like they, talk, they sing the same songs. Um, and my son's in class. That's why I'm using him so often. But my son's right now is he wants to listen to this song called Bear Hunt. And if you never heard it, you know, bless you, okay? Every time we get in the car, it's like, let's go on a bear hunt, Dad. So we have to listen to going on a bear hunt every morning. He wants to hear it. And it's like, and they always switch, right? It's like six or seven months of that, and then something will switch. It'll be another full year of that. Before it, it was the Grinch. He wanted to listen to the Grinch at Christmas and then all year until the next Christmas. But there's a benefit to this, which is that we're formed through that kind of repetition. And so what we do is we begin to try to repeatedly every morning imitate the life of Jesus and we get, listen to me, you get better at that. You're not going to be perfect at that. It's, it's progress, not perfection. But you get better at living a life that mirrors Jesus by trying it on and trying it on regularly. And this is why the gospel's provided to Christians. It's not only because obviously we needed forgiveness for salvation, it's also because sanctification isn't possible unless we have that safety net to ask God, forgive us where we've fallen short, because we will. But we try and pursue Christ-likeness. Okay. Now, if you watch Jesus closely, listen to him carefully, what do you see? And Paul tells us exactly what we see when we see Jesus In verse number two, he says this, so walk in love as Christ loved. Not as the culture defines love, not as how we would like to define love, but as Christ loved. Well, how did Christ love us? He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's a neat summation of the life of Jesus from Paul because there's nothing that Jesus did that was not from love. Whether you see Jesus kneeling down to the adulterous woman in John 8 who's been caught in adultery and she has, she's now been stripped before all of the Pharisees and she's about to be cast into judgment. And Jesus kneels down and says, he who is without, was at, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Or whether you see Jesus running into the temple with a, with a whip that he made from his own hands and beating people out of the temple, both of those are out of love. Both of those are motivated by a loving God. Sometimes we only see John 8, his loving hand for the adulterous woman, and we forget that Jesus loved the Pharisees. You ever thought about that? Jesus actually loved the Pharisees. He loved them enough to tell them what they didn't want to hear. He loved them enough to confront them. He loved them enough to say hard words to them. And if you're a parent, you innately get this. You love your kids enough to get them a birthday cake and make them a birthday cake, and you love them enough to put them in time out, right? Both of those are motivated by love. Jesus loved us perfectly. And Paul gives three major ingredients to this kind of love, and I want to work my way through them. The first one is he says, Jesus loved us because he gave himself up for us. So number one, love, Christian love, includes dying to self. 
Christian love is self-forgetful. Christian love at its very starting line is not about you, and you have to start there. We forget ourselves in the act of true Christian love because true Christian love doesn't serve your own interest, listen to me, as the primary motivating factor. And I said that for a purpose. This is the unique secret that no one talks about. When you really love like Jesus calls you to love, it's always in your best interest ultimately. It always is. But that's not the reason that our starting line, that we start there, right? We start there as self-forgetful. It's not about us at all. It's just about the act that God's called us to. And the result, obviously, is good for us. But first and foremost, we have to see that love is about dying to self. This is the Christian ethic of Jesus saying, you can't follow me unless you deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. You can't follow me. Number two, notice here that Christian love is worshipful. It's God-oriented. I want to draw your attention to this last half of this verse. It says that Jesus gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to who? To God. So although Jesus gave himself for us, who did he do it for? It was unto God. Unto God, Christ loved us until the end. Unto God, Christ went to the cross. Unto God, as worship, Christ lived a sacrificial life. True love orients itself under God's authority as an aim to please God. Now, this may seem counterintuitive. You might be saying, wait, shouldn't true love be about the person first? I mean, not anything or anyone else. It should be about the person that's standing across from you. Well, there's two reasons why not. Number one, because Jesus called us not to merely love our friends, but also to love our enemies, if we don't first choose to love as an act of worship to God, we will pick and choose who we love and deem our own times that are appropriate to walk in love. And in so doing, we won't actually fulfill the command to walk in love at all times. You see, if you just say, well, it's about the person. What about people that are unlovable? You ever met that person? Like, no. It's like, okay, well, you might be that unlovable person then that others have met. But you've all, we've all met those people or had those engagements where we're like, I don't really want to love this person. And it's only if we start with love as an act of worship to God that we have the motivation and the strength to love people who are unlovable. And the reason for that is because we recognize that in the scriptures it says that we were all unlovable and Christ loved us while we were still weak. That Christ looked at us and he, he saw us in our state and, and he loved us. But there's a second reason and maybe an even more important reason that we must start with God to have true Christian love. And it's this. It's only when you have directed your love to another as a worshipful act of obedience to God that then you look upon the eyes of the Savior and you can truly understand what it means to value someone, the dignity that human beings have, the worth that human beings have just because they were made in the image of God. You'll never really know what it means to love another until you know just how precious another human life is sitting across from you. And the only way you know that is by looking at God and saying, every single person, you've never met someone who's not immortal. You've never met someone that wasn't made in the image of God. Think about that for a second. Unbelievable. C.S. Lewis said, if we could see one another as we will be one day, whenever we're glorified, we would all be tempted to fall down and worship each other because you're an image bearer of God. And it's only when we see God that we're able to see that in each other. Here, let me tell you, if you don't do that, it's easier to dehumanize each other. It's easier to make each other feel like we're trite. It's why we can treat each other like transactions, like widgets on your phone because we don't see one another as image bearers of God. 
even the person that annoys you the most is an image bearer of God. I do. Uh, I, I, I've done weddings a lot. I did one this uh, yesterday. On Saturday, I did a wedding, and I, I always start the wedding like this. We're here today because of the love that these two have for one another. And then I always follow that up with, but it's not really their love that we're here celebrating. We're celebrating the fountainhead of the love that God has for his people, the love that God has for all of us. And I say, that's the fountainhead of every other love that we experience on the earth. So I spend a lot of time talking about there's no way for us to understand what these two are doing unless we understand God's love for us in sending Christ. And that's the reason that I think Paul here says that we ought to walk in love with one another as a sacrificial offering unto God. Worship to God is what drives love, real love. And then lastly, you can't miss that he, in his worship language, God, or Paul is, is hearkening back to the Old Testament and he says, Christian love is sacrificial. I've heard one pastor say it like this, all uh, deep acts of Christian love are atoning. They're, they're substitutionary. That you put yourself in the place of another. Even the most insignificant acts like your marital love. Husbands, whenever your wife has had a rough day and you decide you're gonna wash the dishes for her in that moment, you're substituting yourself for her, right? Or vice versa. It doesn't always have to happen like that. I just use it as an example, but you're substituting. I'm gonna step in and do this for you. That act of service is, a, is an act of substitutionary love. You stand in their place. This is going to be difficult for you, so I'll do it. Remember like the Titanic, right? We all love that movie. You know, Leo DiCaprio standing on the front of the ship. What was the act of love? Well, twofold. Number one, you saw all the men were allowing for the women and children to get on the boat. And what, what part made you really mad? It's when old Billy Zane tries to get on the boat, right? Remember that? If you don't know Billy Zane, Google him later and you'll laugh. Okay. Billy Zane tries to get on the boat and act like he's got kids. And everyone innately says, what a coward. Why? Because true love is always substitutionary. Our life for theirs, their life matters more than mine. And the men were saying that the women and children's life matters more than ours. So we'll stand in their place as the act of love. Later on, you see the whole Jack and Rose moment, right? And we're all wondering, like we've seen the memes on the internet, like couldn't there be more room? Why is she so selfish? But the idea, the reason we all love it is because my place for yours. One of us is going to get to get on this, this piece of wood and one of us is going to die. The act of love is you take my place on the, on the boat. And at its very heart, what this is hearkening to is the, is the true archetype of Christ, the true story that actually happened where Christ said, I take your place. And it always includes sacrifice. The deepest parts of love are always sacrifice. My place for yours. King David has this moment. In the, in the I think it's... Um, 2 Samuel, and also in Chronicles, there's a story of David and his census. God tells David, don't count the soldiers, trust me. David counts the soldiers anyway, and God has, is deeply kindled with anger towards David for counting all of his soldiers. And so there's a pestilence that makes its way through the camp as judgment, and David prays to God and says, please let the pestilence pass. And as the pestilence passes, David says he's going to make a sacrifice unto God for worship, and he shows up to this man's house named Ornan, and he says, I want to gold and all of these very costly stones and also like heifers. And I'm, I'm going to make a sacrifice. And of course, Ornan does what we would all do. Like if the president showed up to your house and said like, I want to, I'm hungry here. Let me pay you for dinner. You'd be like, no, don't worry about it. Like I'll pay for dinner. Right. It's like, you know, whatever. It's the president. I'll pay for dinner. It's on me. You can stay at my house. You want to, you want to sleep in our bed? Like we'll take care of that. Ornan does this. He's like, you're the king. You don't have to pay a thing. Take whatever you want from my house. And David has this line that's very famous. He says, I will, not, I will not offer a sacrifice unto God that which cost me nothing. 
He says, far be it from me that I would ever try to worship God with something that didn't even cost me. What's the purpose? In the Old Testament and in the New, this doesn't change. Worship always has a sacrificial element because there is no meaning to worship if it doesn't cost. We, we innately know this. It's why even at our weddings, there's an exchange of rings. What is the exchange of rings? Sometimes it's a very small ring, right, when we're broke. And sometimes it's a very beautiful ring, right, whatever it may be, but it costs something. This is the idea of the bride price. There's a cost. Why? Because it shows that you mean something to me. Something else had to die in order for this to come to life. My bank account had to die for this to come to life, but it's worth it. That's the idea. And if you think about all the most meaningful things in life, whether it be your children or whether it be even the birth of your kids, it's through the pain of the mourning that the mother has to go through that the joy comes forward. And then you say things, moms, later on, like you don't even know what it took to have you, child. That's why you should love me because I loved you like that. And you can't explain a mother's love. It's sacrificial in its very nature. It's why moms get that like supernatural strength whenever their children are in danger. It's real. This is actually like, there's been scientific studies on this. Moms can do weird things, strong things. It's like, I, I don't know how to make sense of it. I'm always like making fun of my wife. I'm like her upper body strength. I'm like, that's lame until something pops off and then it's scary, you know? But it's because sacrifice is at the heart of real love. Now, here's the thing about love is by saying it's sacrificial, we're also saying that love is both inefficient and inconvenient at times. <laughs> now, listen to me. This is something you need to hear. Real love is inefficient and inconvenient. It's why when you look at Jesus, he typically takes the long way around when he's trying to get to a city. You ever wondered why he does that? I mean, apart from him being the son of God, if we're really trying to imitate Jesus, it's like he's going from Atascacita and he's trying to get to Huffman. So then what he does is he goes to Laporte. They're like, well, why? Why is he doing that? And it's not because of detours and you know, traffic on the chariots. It's because he's meeting up with someone. He has a purpose and it's inconvenient and inefficient, but he's got to do this thing. He's got to make his way over here to love this person well, and then he's going to get to where he's going. The best example of this is Jairus' daughter, the Roman centurion. He comes to Jesus, my daughter's sick, please heal my daughter. So he's going on his way to Jairus' house and a woman touches the hem of his garment. So Jesus stops everyone and says, power has left me. The disciples are like, there's thousands of people around you. Of course, someone touched you. What are you talking about? And he says, no, this was different. And he stops in the middle of this intense moment for Jairus and begins to minister to this woman with the issue of blood. He could have just continued walking, efficiently healing people by letting them touch him, right? It's like just healing people. Well, I got to get to Jairus's house. No, he literally stops and ministers to this woman and lets Jairus's daughter die and then shows up and raises her from the dead. What is Jesus teaching us? Well, in one sense, you might say, Jesus is teaching us that we're not him. Well, agreed. (laughs) But he's also teaching us that the truest acts of love, Christian love, include inefficiencies, inconveniences that we are often unwilling to bear because we're unwilling to make the sacrifice. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like giving in the church. We you know, the Old and New Testament says that we ought to set aside money to give. Why? Because principally, giving is always supposed to be something that actually makes us feel. It actually makes us sting. It actually makes a difference. But what we do is we try to think of what's the most convenient, what's the most amount of money that would not actually hinder us from doing the things that are convenient. But the scriptures say no, that it worships different than that. Worships about actually 
giving something that's a sacrifice, right? And our whole lives are this. The book of Romans chapter 12 says this. It says, live your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. That's what Paul's getting at. The life of love is a life of worship to God. Every day is about, I'm submitting myself to God's plan. There's a story with Jesus sitting with Peter. And as he sits with Peter, he has the Pharisees and the scribes on one side of the table, and he's got tax collectors and sinners on the other. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, saying, who is this man that he would eat with these filth? Who is this man that would eat with these people who no one in polite society wants to eat with? Does he not know their sin? Does he not know their grotesqueness? Does he not know that they don't care about the Torah? And Jesus knowing, they're not saying this to Jesus, by the way, they're talking amongst themselves, but Jesus knows their heart and he knows their thoughts. So he turns to Peter and says, Peter, I want to tell you a story. There was once a man who owed a little amount of money and there was once a man who owed a lot and the master forgave both of them, their full debt. He said, which one of them do you think was more grateful? And Peter said, of course, the man who owed more. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, he who is forgiven much forgives much and he who is forgiven little forgives little. And this is the theme of Paul's words here. He who is loved much, loves much. He who is loved little, loves little. The reason I said when we started this, this morning that there's no way to understand the rest of the chapter apart from these two verses is because the only way we walk in love is when we recognize how loved we are by God. And the more that that begins to well up, the deeper that becomes, the more we understand just how loved we are by God, the more access we have to love each other. But if we think that we've been loved little, then of course we'll love little. And this is why, this is how you can love sacrificially because when you realize what Jesus did for you, there's no sacrifice we're going to give that's going to match it, right? The implication of these two verses is almost endless, but I wanted to leave us with this question. What would it look like for us to be a community marked by this kind of radical love? What would that look like? Well, Spurgeon has a great quote. He says, the Bible is not the light of the world. The Bible is the light of the church. He says, but the world does not read the Bible. The world reads Christians. So you are the light of the world. And then he ends the quote. What is he getting at? He says, if you're the light of the world and not the scripture, it's good news because the, the non-believing world is not going to read the Bible, but it could be bad news because if we're not actually embracing walking in the love that Christ has called us to walk in, then we might just be a lighthouse with no light, and that's a scary thought. When the church takes seriously our call to imitate Christ by walking in the same way that he walked, we then take our rightful place being the light of the world. But until then, we will only be an abandoned lighthouse on the shore of the sea, so the church can be still standing. This church can still be structurally sound, capable of being the light. But ultimately, the church would be more of a monument of what was rather than currently a massive force for good, a light that calls the weary ships to the shore rather than running them along the rocky ground. Whenever I do the weddings, I always do... Uh, Ephesians chapter five, this chapter, and I give a charge to the husband and to the wife. And so yesterday I had the two up there. And you, you got, if you've read the text, then you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the, the wife, it starts with the wife and Paul says, submit to your husband. It's a real popular part of the wedding. <laughs> and uh, every time, you know, as, as, as time goes on and culture becomes you know, more and more antagonistic, I'm like, I'm, I need to figure out, like, is there a message version of this that I can read? But um, 
But then I, I, I get into husbands love your wives. And here's the thing. I don't stop there. I, I say, this is not just that Paul tells us to love. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Washing her in the water of the word. Paul goes on for like a full paragraph here saying, the way that Christ loved the church is the way that the husband's called to love the wife. And, and I go on and on and on with, with the husband on this portion because there's an understanding that this text is framed that there's a loving and willful submission that comes whenever there's this kind of love, when there's this context of love. The reason that we know this is because if you really know the love of Christ, then you willingly submit to Christ because you see his love, willingness to lay down his life. But I thought about this in relation to this text because the starting line for us on how we can walk in love and imitate Christ is first and foremost to meditate on just how loved we are by Christ. It's the only way. There is no other way except to really think and think deeply about how loved you are by God that he would send his only son. How loved you are by God that he'd be willing to go to the lengths that he did. No matter who you are or where you are, you're loved by God this way. That's an incredible thought. And the more deeply that you can meditate on that and ruminate on that, the more deeply you're going to love others. Or as Jesus said, he who is loved little will love little, but he who is loved much will love much. Let me tell you something. You are loved much, much more than you could ever imagine. And so this morning, my prayer for you is that you would experience that love by communing with Christ in worship. Let me pray for us. Lord, of course, we want to love like you loved. Of course, that is our heart. Father, my heart is, I want that for the marriages in the room. I want that for the couples in the room. I want that for the kids in the room. I want that for each person that is under the sound of my voice, all their relationships, all of their life. I want them to, to love like that and to be loved like that in return. But Father, I want to turn my prayers to one thing specifically. Would you help us this morning to experience just how loved we are by you? for that truth to set into our hearts and minds that we are loved by God. And that we would drink deeply from that well, God. Help us, help us this morning. Our hearts can calcify and we can lose sight, but I ask, would you help us to see and feel and sense just how loved we are by you? And in so doing, that we would have the power, the strength, and the motivation to love well this week. In Jesus' name, amen.